If you guys would go ahead, uh, you could turn in your Bibles. We're going to be finishing up James chapter 1, just focusing on the last two verses, verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. Um, but before I, I get into the text, I'd like to open with a word of prayer. I'll just be honest, I was, I was feeling pretty confident this morning uh, whenever I got here because I saw that uh, the tent of meeting had been set up, the cloud had descended, and I was feeling pretty confident, but now the cloud seems to be withdrawing itself, so uh, we'll see how this goes. So if you all will uh, join me in a word of prayer, we'll, we'll ask the Lord's blessing. God, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to gather together as a church family. In all seriousness, Lord, I thank you just for the small things. As, as Jim read this morning in, in the Psalms, Lord, of just how all creation sings your praise and was made for your glory. And Lord, that you uh, exercise your governance over all creation and that you bring uh man blessings through your creation lord so even things as an overcast and a bit of a cool breeze can be such a blessing as we meet outside lord so i pray that as we continue uh to fellowship as we continue to worship you through the the preaching and teaching of your word that you would be glorified god I ask that despite myself and my inabilities that your spirit would have your way that your word would go forth uh, and would just bring about the changes that you see fit within our hearts and our lives. So, God, we just ask for your blessing. I ask that you would be glorified through this time as we worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so, um, like I said, we'll be finishing up James chapter 1. What I'd like to do, as I usually do, is just open up. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 1 since it's been a little while since... Um, I was here for us just to have it fresh in our mind, um, hopefully recall some of the context that we've discussed previously, so that way I'm not unnecessarily redundant, and then we'll just move on uh, through some of the significance that we can unpack from these last two verses. So James chapter 1, verse 1, I read through the uh, ESV version. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, it withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like one who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So if you all recall last time, um, whenever I was up here and preaching, we really focused on uh, verses 22 through 25, and, and the, the emphasis there was regarding being doers and not hearers only. And, and James was admonishing the church, is equally applicable to us, to, to do what it is that God's law says, to do what the scriptures say, to not simply hear what it is that we should be doing, but to be sure that we are applying what we've heard to our lives and that we are exercising that. And he uses the example for the person that fails to do that. It is as though they look in a mirror and they walk away and they forget what they look like. And the reason for that is because we as fallen creatures don't interpret things rightly because of our sin. And because of what Christ has accomplished, for those of us that are in Christ, we once again are able to understand the world around us rightly through the aid of God's Spirit and through the illumination that comes through the Scriptures. And so it's apart from God, it's as though we had poor vision, we don't have the glasses to see things properly. But through Scripture and through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we have the lens in which we can process things rightly. And so whenever we hear God's word, which is the barometer, the standard by which right and wrong is set, the way that reality is judged, if we hear the things in scriptures and we, we walk away from that and we forget that or we don't apply those things, it's the same as though we took off our glasses and decided to hop in the car and go for a drive. That it's, it's not going to go well for us. It's as though we look in the mirror and we forget what we look like. And so we really need to be sure that we are seeking to apply the things that we're learning. We're not going to do this perfectly. We're not going to do it 100%. But we need to be applying ourselves towards those things and be praying that God would enable us to do that rather than simply showing up to church on Sunday or perhaps Wednesday or doing a Bible study at home or whatever it may be hearing some good news, bobbing your head, saying, yes, I agree with that, that good, that's good, and then turning around and leaving and, and living life as though nothing had changed. So we're going to pick up from that and move forward because we really emphasized last time the difference between hearing and doing. There's those that hear and then there's those that do. Well, in these last verses, James is, is pulling out another thread of somebody who, who does 
they're doing the word, but are they doing it sincerely? And so we'll, we'll unpack that. So specifically, verses 26 and 27 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James is saying... There's those that hear and there's those that do. And then there's those that do. They think that they're religious because they're, they're doers of the word, um, but that their, their doing is not sincere. It's not being done rightly. I'm sorry, I always struggle with this headset. Um, so James points out that we must guard our tongue. Our speech reflects what is in our heart. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. So the failure to bridle the tongue. One second. All right, we'll try that is evidence of our heart condition. We must guard our tongue because our speech reflects what is in our heart. This is one of the first main points that I want us to cover. I want to lay out the main points that I want to walk through in its entirety so you guys already have them in their mind. And as we walk through verse by verse, it'll help you to, to track along. So the main points that I want to cover are, are fourfold. We must guard our tongue. Our speech reflects what's in our heart. Our heart condition will lead us to bear fruit. That's either going to be good or bad. Thirdly, we should love and serve others, especially those in need, because God cares for those just as much, those in need, just as much as he does others. And fourthly, Christians should show this care and concern all the time, not just during specific seasons, such as the holiday seasons we're in right now, where those those acts of benevolence and charity are, are heightened a bit more. So those are the four points that I want to draw out from this text that we'll walk through. So firstly, James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, some other translations, I think the King James translates it, uh, seemeth religious. If anyone thinks or seems religious, uh, but does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person is not concerned about actually being religious, actually being sincere, but they only want to appear as such. Already with saying that, for some of us that are familiar with our Bibles, we may think of the Pharisees back whenever uh, Christ's earthly ministry was going on, and how they would stand at the street corners, and they would sound the trumpet when they're giving to the needy, and those types of things. They, they want the attention and focused on them. These people are concerned about being seen. The thing is, is what James is admonishing us here, going from hearers and doers and then the person who seems religious, he's admonishing believers that, to, to put it in my words, that we need to be the same behind closed doors as we are in front of people. And so it's easy in a setting such as at, in your church or um, if you're involved with a ministry or, or doing different things like that where, where you're being seen, where you appear religious, you're doing the right things. I was having a conversation with my mom the other day when I was driving home from school. It can be very easy for people to perceive me in the season of life I'm in. I'm, I, I'm uh, attending church regularly. I have the opportunity to come up and preach occasionally. I'm going to Bible college. I work full-time in ministry. There's all these things where it seems like I'm doing the good Christian thing but the reality is, is I know all the areas of my life where I'm still 
falling short. I'm still stumbling that I'm not a perfect person. And I never want, this is just an example, I never want those externals of my life to be where I find confidence in my walk with God. I want what I do behind closed doors to ultimately be the standard. And I believe that's what James is admonishing here is, yes, it's good to, for us to do things where people do witness it, but that shouldn't be our sole motive. If we only do these good things, we are only doers of the word when people can see it. We need to be doers of the word when nobody sees it except for God. We need to be sincere of heart. He also says this person believes himself to be a doer, that he's not only a hearer. God's word in this case hasn't fallen on deaf ears. They're not indifferent where they hear and then they move on and they forget. But in this case, it has fallen on hard hearts. How do we know this? James goes on to say, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. The failure to bridle the tongue is evidence that this religion is not sincere, that it has fallen on a hard heart because the fruit of the failure to exercise self-control over their speech reflects what is in their heart. One must show self-control over the tongue. The failure to do so shows their true religion. What comes out of our mouth shows what is in our heart. There's a passage I'll read in a moment that alludes to that. But this is what James is admonishing the believers in the previous verses, 19 and 20, that the believers must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. As we drew out last time, that that's not simply becoming mad, but becoming overly passionate to allow our human emotions to take the reins rather than exercising self-control. For the anger of God does not produce, I'm sorry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is what the bridling of, of the tongue is. It's being quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become overly passionate, slow to become angry. For those of us that are familiar with riding horses, I am no expert at all, but uh, I've seen shows and I, I know a little bit, but you've got your saddle, you ride that, and there is the reins that you hold to turn the horse, and the reins only work as long as there is a, a bit in the horse's mouth. Mouth. The bridle needs to be there in order to to control where the horses go. And so to use that metaphor that the reins in the hand are exercising that. And whenever we don't have that bit in the mouth, that there is no control, that things just go awry. And that's what's taking 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 place in this instance. So being slow to speak and slow to become overly passionate it takes discipline. It takes efforts. Believers must participate in the sanctifying of the tongue. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37, like we read this morning, says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the mouth, I'm sorry, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 
So there's the point that out of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But the point that I want to draw out here with this text is, is in verses 36 and 37. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. We cannot be careless about our speech. So this is kind of the top level point about a failure to bridle the tongue is there's the surfacey level that has significant implications. This text in Matthew about speaking careless words certainly is referring to speaking about the things of God. We certainly cannot be careless about the things of God. I should not, nor any of the pastors or any of the teachers, any parents, stand up before an audience, stand before their children, and just assume what they're speaking is true about God. We need to spend time in the word and we need to seek counsel. We need to make sure that what we are speaking as truth is actually true because the carelessness with which we speak plants seeds in people's hearts and that bears fruit, either good or bad. So this is certainly true when it comes to things of God, but this can also be applied to the way that we choose to communicate with others just in a more general sense. The careless, perhaps even offensive or crass words that we let slip out of our mouth are not insignificant. That, that even in, in the moment of, of our passions, of perhaps those instances where you're, you're working on a project and the hammer slips and you smash your thumb and the things that you let out of your mouth, even those things are significant. We can't be dismissive over any elements of our speech. We as Christians should seek to steward our words because as Matthew 12 told us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so even in those instances of us being reactive rather than being slow to speak, it still is evidence of fruit that's in our heart that may need to be looked at that we need to exercise sanctification in those areas as well and not dismiss those seemingly small things as just seemingly small things we should work in those areas as well so this is really significant do we communicate with others in light of their image bearing nature so we need to understand that every human being that has ever existed and ever will exist that exists presently is made in the image of God. They have that image-bearing nature. It's what sets them apart from the rest of, of creation. Since all are created in the image of God, do we treat others with the innate dignity and respect that they warrant? So the way that we are communicating to other people are we communicating to them in a way that attests to their image-bearing nature? This is especially true, I believe, whenever it comes to children, whenever it comes to younger people. Do we communicate with young people, no matter their age, in a manner that acknowledges their image-bearing nature, that they are, in fact, unique persons, not our possession for those of us that are parents, but this may even be true for older people speaking to younger people, for older siblings speaking to younger siblings. Do you communicate with young people in a way that attests to the fact that they are made in the image of God and therefore warrant dignity and respect? Now, if they don't carry themselves in a manner, there is a way to communicate to them to point that out, but we cannot just treat young people 
or people that have mental disabilities or people in general that we simply disagree with. We can't communicate them in a way that diminishes the image-bearing nature that is in them. We as Christians should seek to bridle our tongues in the way that we are communicating what we're communicating always Always because people are made in the image of God. We are to steward our relationships. The way that we communicate to others is a way of exercising stewardship. So this is true for a husband and wife. This is true for a parent and child, for a sister and a brother, for a friend to a friend, a co-worker to a co-worker. I could go through example after example, but in all of our relationships, we should be mindful of this passage that if we think we are religious, a fruit of that, if we think that we are sincere Christians, that we are doers of God's word, one litmus test that we can use to see if that's true or not is are we bridling our tongue are we stewarding our communication in all of our relationships are we speaking in a way that acknowledges other people's image bearing nature if we're not we should repent and change that if you're indifferent about that then perhaps you are this person that James is referring to that is deceiving themselves and merely appears religious. As I was studying and trying to unpack the significance of these verses, I was reading a few different commentaries, and I read a commentary on verse 26 from Matthew Henry. I would pulled out a long quote, and then I realized this is kind of confusing. I'm just going to paraphrase it. So essentially, Matthew Henry interprets verse 26 as far as bridling the tongue with an, uh, um, another area of emphasis that I think is really helpful. He emphasizes that in the, the time and context of which James would have been writing this, that there was a tendency for teachers, for people in, in prominent positions, to speak poorly against other teachers and preachers. They were very critical. The way Matthew Henry words it is they were censoring other people, is they were nitpicking what other people were saying to to too far of an extent. There was obviously false teachers and they need censorship. We need to be sure to do that. But again, even in those instances, we need to be sure that the way that we are censoring or correcting other people is done in a way that, that acknowledges their image-bearing nature and the power of the Spirit to hopefully correct where they are wrong and send them right, not in an arrogant sort of way where, excuse me, I know more than you, so let me teach you when we belittle and we demean them that we need to be sure that we, when, when there is areas of critique that need to take place, that we communicate that in a way, again, where we're bridling our tongue, we're exercising self-control. We need to defend truth, but in a way that is in line with the character of God. We need to seek to call those who are led astray to repentance, not merely condemn them in a critical, antagonistic manner. I think that this is all too prevalent in this day and age. I, I, I don't assume that many of you, maybe some of you are uh, YouTube theologians that like to watch all the YouTube videos and then scroll through the comment sections and find uh, all the areas where people are saying foolish things and then you pull out your soapbox and stand on it and start chatting away to correct people. But that is a very prominent thing in this day and age. For me, in Bible college and for students in seminary, 
it is rife that people are doing this. They think that they're learned individuals and they're going to correct all the people that are wrong. And so they get on YouTube or whatever social media platform and they start. And this this may this doesn't even have to be when it comes to theology. This can just be to a comment that somebody makes is that we use the platform of the Internet or text message or whatever in personal form of communication to all of a sudden try and correct people where they're wrong. And more often than not, if you read through some of those threads and comment sections, it gets out of hand pretty quickly. And the sad thing is, is that happens within Christian contexts as well. Well, why does that happen? For this very reason, not bridling the tongue, that we need to make sure that what is in our heart is coming out of our mouth, even when that's coming out in the form of text. Again, I know I'm beating a dead horse, but we need to make sure that the way that we're communicating with people reflects the image-bearing nature, that they are created in the image of God, and our heart for Christ, we need to communicate with them in such a way. James gets into this more, especially the point that uh, Matthew Henry's making as far as being critical of others and this topic of the tongue in chapter 3. So hopefully if there's opportunity to walk through that, that we can look at that. But James speaks of the tongue even more. So with all of this said, James uh, uh, making the comment about a person that seems religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, he says that he deceives his heart and that this person's religion is worthless. And, and earlier in verse 16, James admonishes these believers. He says, do not be deceived, my brothers. So here, this is twice now within one chapter that James reminds us that it's human nature to deceive ourselves, that that is our tendency. We tend to make excuses for our sinful behavior in an effort to let ourselves off the hook. And more often than not, in order to do that, we have to take somebody else and we put them on the hook, so to speak. We point the blame towards somebody else. And so James is saying, do not do that here. If your heart is deceived because you're appearing religious and that's brought to your attention, don't dismiss that saying, well, that person who pointed that area out in my life where I'm, I'm, I'm acting this way, I'm doing this way in front of people, but behind closed doors, how that didn't line up with the way I was acting there, that person who was critical of me, the problem doesn't really lie with me. The problem lies with that person. They're just judgmental. They're just critical. They're just jealous. They're just angry. They're just foolish, whatever it is, that we, if Christ's Spirit dwells in us, when somebody criticizes us, in love, even if the fruit of the way they do that, even if they stumble and they fail to communicate that in the best manner, I would say we as Christians should always be slow to speak and quick to listen, even when our feelings get hurt. Take time to process that, not be quick to become angry, and see if there is something in fact that is true about that. And if so, repent and turn from that, even if the person that delivered that message communicated it in a way that was less than ideal. It doesn't always have to come in a perfect package with a bow on it for truth to be there and for us to apply it to our lives. Can we separate the wheat from the chaff? Can we take the meat off the bone? Can we not throw the baby out with the bathwater? There's always these different examples I could use um, of where we need to take this truth and process it. We need to not deceive ourselves. So again, this person that is de deceived, he thinks that he is religious, but his actions, the failure to bridle his tongue, tells otherwise. Jesus words this by, you will know a tree by its fruit. Again, Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 35, to reiterate, 
either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you were evil? Evil is in your heart, therefore you cannot speak good for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. We must know our fruit. Do not be deceived. Know the fruit that's in your heart by what comes out of your mouth. Additionally, it is the church's job, not just churches in Everglades as the entity, but the churches in the body of Christ. It is the church's job to attest to the fruit in our lives. It is our job to attest to the fruit in others' lives. What do I mean by that? It is our job to share with our friends and family and brothers and sisters in Christ areas in our life where we see that the fruit that's coming out of their mouth or their actions is not lining up with what is coming out of their mouth on Sundays, so to speak. Whenever they're, they're trying to do their best, but behind closed doors, their fruit is not lining up with it. It is the church's job to bring that to our brothers and sisters' attention. Is that because we're critical? Is that because we're judgmental? Is that because we're jealous? Is that because we're whatever? No, it's because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we as Christians need to adopt a posture of being receptive to criticism in an effort to grow in sanctification. When something is pointed out in your life, do your best to not allow your walls go up and be on guard. But again, process that. Why? Because if you're truly in Christ, your heart desire should be to grow in conformity to the image of Christ. So when something is brought to your attention that is failing to do that, we should receive that with joy as an opportunity to grow in further conformity to Christ, not as an offense to our comfort level, and we'd rather stay over here. To say that is to deceive yourself. You would rather, rather remain ignorant in, in sin than take advantage of this opportunity to work in this area of your life to grow in further conformity to the image of Christ, which ultimately brings nothing but good fruit of joy and peace. The fruit of the Spirit comes through growth in Christ. So we should seek to grow in that. Earlier in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 21, Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And good tree cannot bear, I'm sorry, a good tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. I probably read that wrong. Hang on, guys. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a good a bad tree bear good fruit. The tongue tie. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20. Therefore, by their fruit, you will know them. I am belaboring this point because we need to understand the fruit in our life attests to what's in our heart. We cannot be deceived that just because we say things and act a certain way sometimes that we're good. The way that we act behind closed doors, that fruit in our life is a way to know where somebody is really at. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is Jesus talking and summing up the whole of the command. There's another, in Ma- I think it's Matthew 18, where it's the same passage that is also mentioned there. But Jesus sums it up of loving God and loving neighbor. These are the two greatest commandments. Do we love others with the same kind of love? Is that fruit in our life? Do we love others with the same kind of love which, which, with which God loves us? Or even with which we love ourselves? Do we love our neighbor as we self? Do we bear fruit in line with what Jesus has just summarized as the greatest commandments? This is something that we need to slow down and we need to evaluate our lives. And if there is an area where there's something not in conformity, we need to work on this. So James goes on to tell us, hang on, my page is turned. So this person deceives his heart, verse 26, deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. A person who operates in that capacity, their religion is false, it's worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. Essentially, what he is saying is, is the religion that, that, is, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, religion that is pleasing to God the Father is not what he's just said, but is this, to visit orphans and widows. And ultimately, we could sum that up by loving your neighbor as yourself, that it's picking up that same thread. John Calvin says, James does not define generally what religion is. So in these verses, he doesn't explicitly define what what true religion is, but he reminds us that religion without these things, he mentions, is nothing without what he had just said. Religion without this quality of of helping orphans and widows, we'll unpack that more, um, is nothing. James then teaches us that religion is not to be estimated by the pomp of ceremonies, the visible, but that there are important duties to which the servants of God ought to attend. So the reason why I say that is that we look at this and there's not this explicit outline if you do A, B, and C, then you're good. It's not that if you help an orphan and if you help a widow that you get your get out of hell free card and you're good to go. That's not what he's talking about. James is using this compare and contrast and this is what um, Calvin is drawing out is that a failure to do these things attests to this area of your life. That a failure to do these things you're, you're neglecting this important area of service. So, so what is the point being made here? Visiting orphans and widows specifically is not the apex, the top of the religious life. Like I said, it's not as if you do these things that, that you, you, you secure your salvation. These are, these are examples of selfless service done to those in need. These, are exa- these examples reflect the cares and concerns of God. So this, these examples of caring for orphans and widows is just simply summing up loving your neighbor as yourself. It's, care, it's this benevolent ministry. It's you are doing something to help those in need and expecting nothing in return. And, and in the day and age in which James would have been writing and all prior to that, the, the need of orphans and widows was extremely prevalent because of the need that the society function in of there as, as the uh, kind of the federal head. The man was in charge. There needed to be a person, whether it was a husband or an older son or a family member that would take care of them. And if that wasn't the case, Orphans and widows were utterly destitute, and therefore it was the job, the, the job of the church to take care of them. It, it was those in need needed to be taken care of. 
by those that had. James highlights that believers can only serve their neighbor in this capacity as themselves. They can only love their neighbor as themselves if they love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. It's not just their lips. This love is not concerned about being seen or gaining earthly praises from men. So, that ultimately we cannot have this pure religion that is pleasing before God unless our heart condition is pleasing before God. Unless our heart is in such a posture where we're not simply performing religious duties in front of people to be seen, but we are being truly religious out of doors and behind closed doors. Our heart is sincere for Christ. It is only then that you can love your neighbors yourself. It is only if you truly love God that then through the work of his spirit, he does such a work in your heart where you can love your neighbor as yourself. Just the other is last night uh, we were doing family worship and we were reading through. Um, oh, where were we? I think it was. um Second Chronicles. Anyways, he was talking about Josiah. Uh, and Josiah was eight years old, and he started to uh, purge uh, all the fake idols and gods and this and that. And, and then they discovers the book of the law, and he does that even more. He was, he was very sincere, and one of the, the few sincere kings to try and really get his people back to true worship of God. And my wife made the comment that it's interesting throughout the Old Testament, some of the things that we were trying to communicate to our kids is like the book of Judges, that God had to raise up leaders, a king such as Josiah or David or these good kings, and it was through their exercise of their uh, true love for God that they helped kind of rein in the people to serve well. But once that judge or that king passed away, what happened? They went back to their selfish, self-seeking ways and worshiping false gods. But after Christ, that kind of flips because his spirit resides in each person and therefore, even when there's kings or, 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 or governors or powers that be that are opposing true religion, that believers individually are sincere in what it is that they're doing because the spirit dwells in their heart. And so we can look at this, that, that that's kind of the spot that we're in. People can't love a neighbor as themselves when their heart isn't been uh, born again because their sin nature is self-seeking they can't love others as themselves because they're too focused of loving themselves it's only a christian because they've been given a new heart to love god that then they can love others selflessly so a person cannot truly be religious before god the father they cannot truly love others unless their heart has been made new so there's two significant uh, um points that I want to draw out here from this text of kind of what James is showing us um, as far as visiting orphans and widows. So he's saying these actions, these fruits uh, manifest what's in the heart and these fruit loving others selflessly is what is pleasing before God the Father. So some people fall into the traps of thinking again, this is this is works based, but I thought that salvation was by faith. And so we need to look at Faith and works. James gets into this way more detail, but I want to touch on it here. 
So by faith that we need to caring for the needy and for others does not merit our salvation. No good works that we can do can merit our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes this very clear. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is purely a gift from God. So these works do not earn your salvation. However, James later in chapter 2, verse 18 says, when speaking of works, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So why am I bringing this up here? Our works, such as serving orphans and widows, those in need, those works are evidence of the work that God has done in us. Our loving our neighbor as ourselves, our caring for orphans and widows reflects our love of God not it's not a means of obtaining our salvation so the fruit in our life such as what comes out of our mouth should bear witness to the faith that we have that's kind of the faith works dichotomy is the fruit that we bear is not what leads us to salvation but is the fruit of salvation because we've been saved we can manifest good fruit this is something that we need to be especially aware of as I alluded to at the beginning, during the holiday season, I think it's a lot easier for us during Thanksgiving and during Christmas to be aware of this idea of, oh, we should help the needy, we should help the poor, we should help those in need, because this is a season of giving, we should give. But we as Christians should be concerned about these things throughout the whole of the year. We need to, carry a, we need to care about and serve our family, our church, and others throughout the whole year. Why? Because that's what God cares about. He doesn't only care about it during the holidays. He didn't only care about it during the, the, the Jewish festivals. He cared about it always. And he admonished people to care about it always. Additionally, as I've been harping on, it's because all people are made in the image of God. If everybody bears God's image, it doesn't matter what lowly and destitute person there is that you brush shoulders with. They bear God's image, and so we should treat, seek to treat them with respect and dignity and help to care for them in hopes that God will awaken them to salvation. Serving others is hard. It's easy to stay in our comfort zones. Sometimes, for some of us, this is well, I'm serving my family. I need to focus on serving my family. That is absolutely true and important, but we also need to serve others. There's others that fall to the other side and they're so focused on serving others that they neglect their family. We need to make sure that it's both and, not either or. We need to be serving in all areas of our life to the best of our ability, trusting the Lord to lead us and to guide us. Our lives should reflect the care and the concerns of God. Our fruit should reflect the care and concerns of God. So to wrap this up, James says, so to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. This is, this is pure religion before the eyes of God. So what does he mean by to keep oneself unstained from the world? He's really going back to what he said in verse 26 as far as not doing your religious acts for show. James refers to when he says keeping oneself unstained from the world to not letting the praise and the attention of the world to be our driving force. We need to guard our hearts to make sure that we're not doing what we're doing. We're not giving. We're not serving simply for other people to see us doing that. We also need to be sure that we don't let our sinful desires ensnare us and lead us to operate out of heart motives other than to please God and to love others. 
that, that ultimately our heart motive for whatever we do should be to please God. There should be no other motive for why it is that we're doing. Not personal gain, not recognition, not advancement in a job opportunity, not a pat on the back. It should simply be to please God, whether people recognize it or not, because we know that it's helping us grow in Christ and that God the Father is pleased by that act of service. There are all sorts of things that can be done to make one seem religious, to make one seem successful, to make one seem like a good Christian. But without the pure heart motive, without a proper heart motive, it's utterly meaningless. In the past, status and ceremonies, fancy dress, fancy speech, etc., etc., were what made people seem religious. Again, we can think of the Pharisees as an example. There's all kinds of other religious institutions that we could think of where the way that you dress, the way that you carry yourself, the way that you speak, that's what makes a person seem like they're religious and they're doing, doing well. Nowadays, this can be true, or even the opposite, people that seem to be lowly and hermits and utterly destitute that are just so focused on caring and serving for other people, that can actually be the way in which they are manifesting their false religion because they're doing it to seem so lowly and selfless, but really they're not op or operating out of the proper heart motive. So again, we need to slow down and evaluate our hearts and the fruit that we're bearing. Is the fruit in our lives sincere? Are we simply putting on a show? Whether through pomp and ceremony or through hermitage and selfless self-denial of I'm so lowly and focusing on other people. If you don't have the right heart motive, it is utterly meaningless. We need to make sure that our hearts are postured in such a way that we are acting out of sincere love for God. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We need to reflect on our hearts. This takes time to slow down and be in prayer. This takes time to be reflective. This takes time to spend time in God's word and allow that mirror to shine its light on our heart. And we need to be willing to confront those uncomfortable areas where we've been amiss and allow God to change those areas of our hearts. So in closing, I'm going to reiterate the points that I hope I made clear as I walk through this. First, we must guard our tongue. Our speech reflects what's in our heart. Second, our heart condition will lead us to bear fruit, either good or bad. Good heart, good fruit, bad heart, bad fruit. We should bear good fruit, which is evidence of our being in Christ. We should seek to have good fruit manifest in our life, which is evidence of our being in Christ. Good fruit does not obtain salvation and justification before God, but is evidence of our salvation and justification before God. So those are sub points of our heart condition will cause us to bear good, bear fruit, good or bad. Third point, we should love others and serve others, especially those in need, benevolent, because God cares for those just as much as others. And remember, their image-bearing nature. That's why we should seek to love them, because God loves them and because they bear God's image. And lastly, Christians should show this care and concern all the time, not just during holidays or certain unique seasons where it's especially brought to our attention, but because it pleases God, because people are made in the image of God, because of what should be our good hearts and the good fruit that's bearing out of that, we should seek to love our neighbor as ourselves always, not just occasionally. So let me close this in a word of prayer. God, I pray that uh, as we've walked through this first chapter of James and as we've closed these last couple of verses today, Lord, just that the truth of your word 
would have been stewarded well, Lord. Ultimately, your spirit will have had uh, your way and that, Lord, that you would help us to um, continue to sanctify our hearts, to bridle our tongue, to seek to bear good fruit, uh, that attest to your goodness in our lives, that we should seek to love you with all of our hearts and therefore love others um, out of that heart, Lord. So we just confess that we need your help. We cannot do it apart from you. And so I pray, Lord, as we are in this holiday season, that we would seek to have these, these truths uh, manifest in our lives. And as we go through the, the new year that lies ahead of us and, and the entirety of that, that we would continue to seek to walk this out and not just... Uh, pull up our bootstraps during this time of year, but Lord, that this would just be a sincere heart change. So we ask for you to that, perform that work in our lives. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.